She smiles as she sees who's at the door. She enjoys spending time with him, although she knows her parents wouldn't approve. Then she sees the woman. A brief moment of confusion ensues, but before she knows it, they're both in the house. The door is closed, and he locks it. Something is very wrong, and she has no idea what's coming. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 127, The Murder of Jermaine Abrahams. Now it's time for my tip about what to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from Monday the 28th of August, you can catch the premiere of The Fatal Attraction Murder, examining the famous case of Caroline Warmus. Warmus was convicted of second-degree murder in a sensational trial that grabbed the headlines due to its striking similarities to the hit film starring Glenn Close and Michael Douglas, about a woman obsessed with her married lover. After serving a 27-year sentence, Warmus now shares her side of the story for the first time, allowing viewers to decide for themselves whether she was an innocent scapegoat or a cold-blooded killer. Watch The Fatal Attraction Murder from Monday the 28th to Wednesday the 30th of August at 8pm on DSTV Channel 170 and Starsat 222. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Lorata Letsepe, Manessa Martin and Sharon Moore for your support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskirali for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. This week's case has been requested by quite a few people. And although I thought I understood why initially... As with the prior case I covered, it involves some elements that people often have extreme curiosity around, including the death penalty and a female perpetrator, as well as a killer couple. But the more I looked into this case and really read the requests that had come in from people, the more I realized that their reasoning was different. This case deeply impacted a community. Despite it having happened 37 years ago, there are people that live in this community who weren't related to the victim or any of the perpetrators who still post on social media about this case regularly to remind people of what happened. These posts are often met with varied responses, but for the most part it's a flood of people saying things like, I remember, I'll never forget, 
this murder touched me deeply. I often talk about the ripples that come off a violent crime that go on for generations. And I think this case shows exactly how that happens, and far beyond those directly linked to the people involved. In researching this case, I used a wide variety of sources, but I must point out that as with many older cases like this, the story often becomes the stuff of legends, and little details get added to the story in each retelling. So I've done my best to use as much factual information as I can, but please keep in mind it's almost 40 years later, so there are missing bits that have been lost to time. So, let's get into episode 127, The Murder of Jermaine Abrahams. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. There are three paths to weave in this episode. Three individuals whose lives began and continued mere streets apart from each other in Mitchell's Plain in the Western Cape, but whose lives and paths would diverge and then meet and in different ways all end because of that point of convergence. But the most important story of all belongs to Germaine Abrahams, a young girl who is still clearly remembered 37 years after her death by those who went to school with her and who lived in the same neighbourhood. Germaine was born in 1970. She lived with her parents in Chad Close in Portland, an area in Mitchell's Plain. Germaine was popular and pretty. She was also an excellent athlete. One person recalls an athletics event at Athlone Stadium where Germaine competed in the 200-metre event, and as she rounded a bend, she shot off and left everyone else looking like they were looking for parking. She's also remembered fondly by people who lived in the same street as her, as always being friendly and kind. One of her closest friends recalls the last time she saw Jermaine and how they must have said goodbye ten times before they actually managed to end their conversation. And even then, Jermaine stopped just before she turned the corner that would take her home to wave back at her friend and say, we'll talk again tomorrow. By all accounts, she really was your very average teenage girl. Growing up in Mitchell's Plain in the 70s and 80s means that you were part of a burgeoning community. The area was created by the apartheid government in the early 1970s as a coloured township for middle-income families and coloured people who were forcefully removed from their homes under the Group Areas Act. You would have heard me talk about this before on the podcast and how black, coloured and Indian people were removed from the areas in which they had originally lived under the Act and moved to areas designated for people of their race groups, according to the apartheid government. It was a time when people were forced to create new communities solely along race lines with people they didn't even know. The deep trauma that many people who lived through this time experienced was also accompanied by a deep commitment to making these communities work and making them a safe place to raise children. Pretty much just making the best of a very difficult situation. As a result, the area forged a deeply bonded community with an almost small town feel to it, where everyone knew everyone. I think this is probably one of the reasons that the crime I'm discussing today had such an impact on this community, because it wasn't just a horrific act. It was also a betrayal by their own community members. Oh, and I know you've heard me say this before, but if you are a non-South African listening and you're surprised at my use of the term coloured to describe a group of people, 
I understand your confusion because I know in other places in the world, the word has a negative connotation. But in South Africa, it is a word that a specific racial group uses to describe themselves at this point in time. If that changes in the future, that will be a choice that group of people is entitled to make. But for now, in South Africa, it is an acceptable term. Despite the deep sense of community in Mitchell's Plain, there was already, of course, at this point, some level of criminality, just as there was in every other place in South Africa. In the Western Cape specifically, gangs were already a problem, although not quite as bad as they are today. And the trend of gangs being groups that lost young boys and men were recruited into was not much different then either. We don't know much about Yassim Harris's family life growing up. His father would make comments in the media about how the punishments his son had received as a young offender had not made any difference. And it seems that the father was really just as much at his wit's end with the boy as the state would be too. No one ever really seemed to know what to do with the young man, who almost from the time he hit puberty behaved like criminality had been in his blood. But that didn't seem to be the case. His dad had worked in auto repairs and he'd driven buses for most of his life. Yassim had a brother too, and although some people didn't have very nice things to say about that young man either, we have to consider that it may have just been a case of him being painted with the same brush as Yassim. Whatever the reason behind Yassim's behaviour, his first criminal conviction came when he was 13 years old. Two years after that, with his school record spotty at best, Yassim left his academic pursuits behind. At this point, his dad tried to get him into a trade that would at least give him some form of stability. His father got him a job at the car sound specialist he worked at in Claremont. Things went well for a few months, but soon Yassim's boss noticed money missing. The young man was eventually arrested for having stolen 10,000 rand in cash and 26,000 rand in cheques from his employer. While his father managed to keep his job, Yassim was taken to trial and found guilty for the theft. Due to his age, he escaped prison time, but was sentenced to six lashings with a cane. After this, Yassim held a few different jobs for a month or so at a time, but he couldn't seem to keep anything solid, and ventured more and more into criminality as well as gang culture, and eventually became a full-time member of the Hard Living's gang. Yassim would be arrested again soon after for breaking into a school and received more corporal punishment for this. As Yassim was wading through this turbulent life he was building for himself, a few streets away another young person was dealing with some personal struggles of her own. Sandra Smith had married young. She was born in 1963, and by the time she was 20 years old, she was married and had two young children. Her husband, Philip, worked as a fisherman and spent months at a time out at sea, so instead of living on her own, she lived with her parents so that they could provide her with support when her husband was away. It soon became clear that Sandra was lonely, though, and as a very young woman, perhaps regretting her decision to marry and tie herself down so young. Rather than discussing these issues with her husband, though, Sandra had decided to do something different. She'd seen a young man around town, and he'd piqued her interest. He had a bit of a bad boy reputation, but this only seemed to intrigue her more. Whether or not she realised that Yassim Harris was three years younger than her is unknown, but he was. And although the young man was certainly criminally and streetwise beyond his years, the age gap is there, and the two were also in very different stages in their lives as well. Well, in reality, they seem to come from two totally different universes. But 
For some reason, Sandra was completely enamored. So much so that in October 1983, when her husband had shipped off for another six months, Sandra Smith penned a letter that would change the course of an entire community's lives. Sandra asked Yassim in the letter to meet her in the park down the road from her house. To perhaps sweeten the deal, she included some money in the envelope. I'm sure that Yassim, who by this time had also started dabbling in drugs, could not believe his luck when he received the notes from the older married woman and some money to boot. That first meeting in the park seemingly went very well, because Sandra invited Yassim to visit her in her bedroom the following night. She told Yassim that she had great admiration for him, and her husband was away for a long time. The implication was that if he'd like to occupy that spot in her bed in the meantime, she was open to that, and Yassim did not turn her down. After Yassim had spent that first night in Sandra's bed, he would visit her regularly in the days and weeks that followed. Her husband regularly sent money home for Sandra and the children, and she soon started sharing this money with her young lover. Yassim was grateful for the income, and not at all unhappy to be sharing the young woman's bed either. Sandra's parents had no idea that the young man was sleeping in their house most nights. Sandra would leave her bedroom window open, and Yassim would wait until nightfall and then sneak in. But although her parents were unaware, the neighbours were not. That, of course, is the downside to having a cohesive community. Your life is never really your own, and there's always someone watching. And the people of Mitchell's Plain were watching and taking notes. So when Philip Smith arrived home for a break after his fishing boat docked, he was immediately informed that his wife had been receiving a nocturnal visitor. Upon learning the identity and age of the young man, Philip took matters into his own hands and did what he thought would sort the problem out. He gathered a group of his friends together and they tracked down Yassim Harris and beat him up. Philip then told Sandra that this was her last chance, and if he heard of infidelity again, he would not stand for it. She said she understood, and for a few days after Philip left, seemed to stick to her promise to being faithful. But it wouldn't last for very long. Yassim had grown used to the money he was getting from Sandra, and she seemed more than a little obsessed with the young man. Love letters that would later be read out in court, written by Sandra to Yassim, spoke of her deep passion for him, and she expressed how she felt that she couldn't live without being physically intimate with him. Yassim's bruises from the beating Philip had given him had barely faded by the time he was back to climbing in Sandra Smith's bedroom window. What she didn't seem to realise, though, was that although she was deeply obsessed with him, he saw her more as one option among many. When she was with her husband, Yassim didn't see any problem with spending time with other women. He spent a lot of time outside the local high school, Portland High, the place he should have been attending, but instead used as a way to meet young girls. He would wait outside the school gates, either in the morning or the afternoon, and flirt with the young girls he found attractive. And soon, he set his eyes on one specific young girl. Jermaine Abrahams was 14 years old the first time she met Yassim Harris. He would come and go in and out of her life for two years. They spent time together, but she would never introduce him to her parents and it really seems that she may just have had a bit of a schoolgirl crush on him, but didn't really have any idea what she was dealing with in Yassim. While Yassim certainly seemed to like Jermaine, again, she was just one of many girls and women he was spending time with, 
and he continued to make Sandra Smith a priority, probably because she had money. It would later emerge that at some point, while Yassim had been visiting Germain at her home, he'd actually stolen a few things of value from her house. It's unknown whether she or her parents ever put two and two together and figured out it was him, but the other valuables Yassim knew were in that house would stay on his mind. In late 1985, Sandra Smith discovered she was pregnant. She would later admit that she wasn't sure whether the child was her husband's or Yassim's, but Philip firmly believed that her affair was over, so he was convinced the child was his. The affair between Yassim and Sandra would continue for more than a year, before, in March 1986, her husband came home unexpectedly one day when storms had caused his fishing vessel to dock for a period. He walked in to find Sandra and Yassim in bed together. Yassim jumped out of the window and fled, certain that Philip would gather his friends again to beat him up. In that moment, Sandra made a decision. She packed her bags and left the home, following Yassim and leaving her children behind. Distraught, before leaving home to head back out to sea, Philip would leave a note with Sandra's parents, telling his wife that their marriage was over and he was filing for divorce. Before leaving, he also packed up the three children and took them to his parents' house, instructing them not to allow Sandra to remove the children from their care while he was gone. Sandra and Yassim would spend a few nights at different friends' houses before eventually getting their own flat together. Although Sandra seemed excited to finally be alone with Yassim and starting a life with him, Yassim was concerned that they now no longer had access to the money that Philip had been sending home. Very quickly, Sandra was pulled into the world of criminality to pay the bills. They came up with a scheme where they would rent video machines from video stores and then sell them illegally. For those of you who are wondering what the heck I'm talking about, pre-live streaming, Netflix and even DVDs, there were shops that rented out videos. The name Blockbuster may sound familiar to you. Video machines played videos through your TV, and most people couldn't afford to own one outright, so the shops that rented out videos would also rent out the machines. It was strangely easy to rent these machines out, and if I recall, you just needed to have a membership card with the shop and provide a copy of your ID. So Sandra and Yassim were renting out these machines from various shops, but then instead of returning them when the rental period was over, they would sell them off for a few hundred rand. Of course, they couldn't go back to the same shop twice, so they were going from shop to shop throughout Cape Town doing this. But this really didn't bring in a regular supply of income, and Sandra and Yassim were soon looking for new ways to make money. Although they were living together, Yassim had not stopped seeing some of the other women and girls he'd forged friendships and relationships with. He was an incredible charmer, and many of these young women would later say that they thought they were in a committed relationship with the young man. One of the relationships that Yassim had kept going was with Jermaine Abrahams. And in August 1986, Yassim started thinking about all the valuables he'd seen at the Abrahams' home. He began to share with Sandra about this young lady who... He, of course, told Sandra was just a friend, and that her parents were quite well off, and he knew her mother had a lot of really expensive jewellery. Sandra soon had rand signs in her eyes too, and an idea began to develop. Now, up front, I must say that from this point onward, we rely almost solely on the accounts of Sandra Smith and Yassim Harris to paint a picture of what happened. 
the problem with this is that each party would inevitably try to blame some of the most horrendous parts of this case on the other. So it really is difficult to know who did what. And maybe it doesn't really matter. But we do have a general consensus of events. And who you picture carrying out which action is probably going to be up to you. What we do know for sure is that Yassim Harris was quite tactical about what occurred on the 31st of August 1986. He knew from having spent time with Jermaine that her parents left for work at 7am every day. He also knew that Jermaine left for school at 7.40am. So he very specifically timed their arrival at the Abrahams' home at 7.30am. Now, there are two things to consider around this plan. He would later claim that the plan had been Sandra's idea, and she'd insisted that she wanted to go with. But they'd both also decided that they would go to the house, specifically when Jermaine was still there. They could have broken in after she'd left for school, but they didn't. They wanted her to be there. The reason for this would be clear soon, But it's important to note this because a choice was made here. Leave Jermaine out of what they planned or involve her without care for her safety. And the other part of that is that by deciding to go into the house while Jermaine was still there, they had clearly been intentional about both of them going in there together. They knew very well that two of them would be required to manage Jermaine while they searched the house for valuables. At 7.30am, 16-year-old Jermaine Abrahams was getting ready for school in her home in Chad clothes when she heard a knock on the front door. Perhaps thinking it was a neighbour or a friend passing by, she opened the door and was met with the smiling face of Yassim Harris. Her immediate reaction was one of excitement to see the young man. She liked Yassim. She hadn't yet come to understand how toxic his role in her life was. The minute she smiled at him, her body language and welcoming tone clearly conveyed that they were more than just friends. Yassim asked if he could quickly use her telephone, and she agreed and stepped aside so he could enter. Seconds after Yassim stepped inside, Sandra Smith did too. Jermaine was taken aback. She hadn't seen Sandra standing out of view just beside the house. But Sandra had clearly seen Jermaine's reaction to the sight of Yassim, and it was starting to dawn on her that this very pretty young lady was far more than just a friend to the young man she'd ended her marriage for. It took a moment for Jermaine to process the fact that someone else was entering her home behind Yassim. And I'm sure it wasn't a stretch for her to understand that Sandra was with Yassim in more ways than one. Certainly the dagger eyes she was getting from the woman would have made that clear too. Jermaine asked Yassim if she could speak privately with him and Sandra sat down on the couch in the lounge while the pair disappeared. Soon she heard raised voices coming from the bedroom and decided she'd had enough and she wanted to know what was going on. She walked into the bedroom to find Yassim explaining to Jermaine that they were going to rob her house and she needed to just play along. He told her that they were going to tie her up and she must not tell her parents who had robbed them. Now, It's really difficult to know whether or not Yassim honestly thought this was going to work. As far as we know, he'd not committed any violent crimes before this. And as we get into his personality profile later, it becomes clear that he may have had a skewed idea of just how convincing he was to people. And women, in particular. I find it difficult to accept that he really could have believed that Jermaine would allow this all to go down and then simply not tell her parents who had tied her up and robbed their house. Either way, 
Yassim did tie Jermaine up with Sandra now in the room too. The girl was on the floor on her stomach, and although she lay still for a few minutes, the two perpetrators would claim that someone knocked on the front door during that time, and as soon as Jermaine heard this, she started calling out for help. I don't know where the police were ever able to locate the person who's alleged to have knocked on the door, but this would be a pivotal moment in this crime, and that's one of the reasons I'd really like to know if it's true, because essentially the pair would use the fact that they claim Jermaine started screaming as the reason that the crime turned violent. They claim that when Jermaine started shouting, they became panicked. Yassim put his hand over her mouth, but she struggled to break free, and Sandra held her legs down until the knocking stopped and the person went away. At some point, a dishcloth and knife appeared in the bedroom, and I phrase it this way because Yassim would claim that Sandra had gotten both of these items from the kitchen, and Sandra would claim that Yassim had. They both admitted that the dishcloth had been placed around Jermaine's neck and Jermaine had been throttled until she lost consciousness. Of course, Jermaine was only unconscious and regained consciousness soon after. When she did, she was clearly now filled with terror and continued struggling to get free, and the knife came into the picture. Yassim claims that Sandra had brought the knife in, and when Jermaine had regained consciousness and started struggling again, Sandra had handed him the knife and told him to, quote, stab her dead. Sandra, on the other hand, said that when Jermaine had regained consciousness, it had been Yassim who'd gone into the kitchen and come back wearing kitchen gloves and holding a knife. Both versions put the knife in Yassim's hand, though, and he began to stab Jermaine in the neck. He said that initially Jermaine was on his stomach on the floor, and while he'd been stabbing her, she turned over onto her back, but he'd continued to stab her, predominantly in the neck. Jermaine would be stabbed approximately 25 times during this attack. These injuries would undoubtedly have been devastating and caused significant injury. Jermaine had a slight frame and was just 16. What happened next, I can only put down to the initial surge of adrenaline running through her body and perhaps her youth. We know that young people and children are far more likely to survive injuries like this than older people. As Yassim's knife attack slowed and he moved back onto his haunches, Jermaine suddenly sprung to her feet. Her binding seemed to have come loose at this point, because she stumbled out of the room, headed for the front door, making it as far as the hallway and leaving bloody palm prints along the walls as she stumbled away from her attackers. But Yassim was soon upon her again. Sandra had to have been in contact with Jermaine during the attack too, although she would deny she'd had any role in the actual violence, because a bloody handprint belonging to Sandra was found in the hallway indicating that she too had been involved in dragging the terrified girl back. That initial burst of energy was soon starting to fade from Jermaine's body, along with the blood that seeped from the wounds in her neck, and she lay limp but conscious as Yassim Harris picked her up and carried her into her parents' bedroom. He had not forgotten what they'd come there to get. Yassim placed her on her parents' bed and asked her where her mother kept her jewellery. Jermaine lifted one shaky hand and pointed to a cupboard, which Sandra Smith immediately began to rummage through. Heartbreakingly, as the pair scavenged what valuables they could find, Jermaine begged Yassim to get help for her, telling him she didn't want to die. When that plea was ignored, she asked for a glass of water. Sandra Smith would later tell a judge, we didn't give her any water. What happened next is again a matter of deciding which version you believe, but Sandra would claim that she hadn't actually seen Yassim's final act of ending Jermaine's life. 
She claimed that she'd been rummaging in the cupboards and turned around to find that Jermaine was wrapped in a duvet and not moving. When she peeked inside the duvet, she claimed, she discovered that Yassim had slit Jermaine's throat and that she was dead. In Yassim's version, he claimed that Sandra had warned him that Jermaine would be able to identify them and he knew this to mean that she had to be killed. He claimed Sandra had watched as he'd wrapped the dishcloth around Jermaine's mouth and pulled it tight and then he'd slit her throat. He claimed that Sandra had helped him to wrap Jermaine's body in a duvet. The pair then continued to gather items they wanted to steal from the home. Yassim had pulled a pair of Jermaine's father's tracksuit pants over his own pants to hide the blood, and they'd left the house. I couldn't find an account of the discovery of Jermaine's body, and perhaps that's for the best. The most likely scenario is that her mother or father had returned home from work that afternoon, expecting Jermaine to be doing her homework in her bedroom as she always was on school days, and instead they'd walked into a house of horrors. And a scene that would mark a distinct before and after for the Abrahams family. I don't even want to imagine how horrific it must have been for the person who discovered Germain to unravel that duvet and find what they did. It's just unspeakable. People recalling the afternoon that Germain's body was found clearly remember an immediate police presence and helicopters circling the area late into the night. One person says that whenever they hear the sound of helicopters overhead, it takes them straight back to that day. After an autopsy was performed on Germain, which detailed the horrific attack she'd endured, including 25 stab wounds, marks from the bindings on her hands and feet, several bruises from being held down, and finally the slitting of her throat. Her remains were returned to her family for burial. She would be buried out of the St. Mary Magdalene Catholic Church in a funeral attended by her schoolmates, neighbours, family and loved ones. Today we know that when someone is killed, there's a very good chance it's by someone they know. We also know it's not uncommon for the murderer to attend the funeral or memorial service of their victim. We don't know if Yassim Harris did this. It's likely he would have just blended into the background of the large crowd of mourners if he did. I can imagine that both he and Sandra Smith would have been very aware of the day that Jermaine was laid to rest, though. And although the police didn't seem to have the young man and his girlfriend as suspects yet, one of the pair was starting to crack. Yassim and Sandra lived off the money they'd gotten from the items they'd stolen from Jermaine's house for a while, but some of their previous crimes, the video machine thefts, were still being investigated, and those were about to come back to haunt them. Sandra had been a useful tool to Yassim in these thefts because the video shop owners seemed less likely to suspect women of possible wrongdoing than men, so she'd been the one to rent out most of the machines they'd stolen across Cape Town. Two weeks after the murder of Jermaine Abrahams, police brought Sandra Smith in for questioning about a video machine theft. Halfway through the questioning, she suddenly broke down and started to cry. The police officer questioning her was caught off guard when she asked him if he knew about the murder of the teenage girl that had occurred in Chad Close in August. The officer said he'd heard about it and asked whether Sandra had information about that crime. Sandra Smith went on to provide a full confession about the murder. She implicated Yassim Harris as well, and was already claiming that she hadn't known Jermaine was going to be killed. Later, while being questioned by the judge as to whether she had wanted Jermaine to die, Sandra said, quote, Not really, but she could identify us. End quote. 
After Sandra's admission, the wheels of justice flew into action. She was kept in custody and charged with the murder and robbery of Jermaine Abrahams. Yassim Harris was also arrested and charged with the same. The pair were asked to plead soon after their arrest, and on the 23rd of September, they both pled guilty to murder and to stealing 2,000 rands worth of valuables from the Abrahams' home. Despite their guilty pleas, the process was far from complete, because at this time in South African history, the death penalty was still an option as a sentence, especially for a murder of this nature. Despite their guilty pleas, the pair would still need to go through a full trial to ascertain whether there were any mitigating circumstances that could lead the judge and his assessors to decide not to hand down the death penalty. The first part of this process was for the pair to be sent to Falkenberg Hospital for a 30-day psychiatric assessment. The assessment resulted in Yassim Harris being found to have an antisocial personality disorder with significant psychopathic traits. No specific diagnosis was made for Sandra Smith, but both she and Harris were found fit to stand trial. The trial would begin in Cape Town on the 1st of December 1986. The state maintained that both were equally responsible for the murder, but the pair took the opportunity to continually attempt to shift blame onto one another. Yassim Harris insisted that he'd been dominated by Sandra Smith in his relationship with her and that she had coerced him into committing the robbery and the murder because she was jealous of Jermaine Abrahams. Sandra Smith, on the other hand, claimed that she'd never known that Jermaine was going to be killed, but realised on reflection that Yassim may have always planned for this to be the outcome. The pair's love letters were read out in court, and it seemed clear from some of the more recent ones that neither party had really considered that they may actually be handed down the death penalty. In a letter penned from her prison cell while awaiting trial, Sandra told Yassim that she would wait for him, and his response to her was that it was a very long time to wait, and he didn't know how he would feel after such a long time apart. Those watching got the distinct feeling that Sandra Smith was most emotional and upset by having her love letters read out in court, more so even than when describing the horrific murder of Jermaine Abrahams. Although Sandra Smith regularly admitted in her testimony that Jermaine had been killed to prevent her from identifying them, Yassim Harris refused to admit this. The judge would ask him on many occasions to acknowledge why he killed Jermaine, and he constantly repeated, I don't know. A psychiatrist would testify that in her assessment, although Sandra Smith was certainly a demanding partner, she was not dominant enough to have influenced a person like Yassim Harris. There also seemed to be no evidence to support the idea that either party had been unduly influenced by the other, and that it was entirely possible that both would have eventually gone down this route, whether with each other or another partner. The judge would finally conclude that both Smith and Harris were equally responsible, despite it having been Harris who actually killed Jermaine. He found no mitigating circumstances that could steer him away from the death penalty, and on the 22nd of December, both were sentenced to hang for the murder. In case they happened to receive a pardon down to a life sentence at any point, they were also given 10 and 7 years respectively for the robbery. Upon hearing the sentence, Sandra Smith became hysterical and had to be forcibly restrained to be carried down to the cells. The only prison with execution facilities in the country was Pretoria Central Prison, so in the next few days, the pair were transported to that prison to be admitted to death row. The appeals for both were turned down, and in addition, the transcripts of the trial were sent to the Ministry of Justice to see whether clemency might be granted by the state president at the time, 
but this was also refused. In the 1980s, South Africa had the highest rates of judicial execution in the world, but despite this, only about 2% of all people convicted of murder were actually executed during this period, with the vast majority being handed down life sentences. So it seemed that Germaine's horrific murder really had struck a chord with more than just her own community. Within days of their clemency being denied, Sandra and Yassim were both advised that they would be executed on the 2nd of June, 1989. Group hangings were relatively common, as it made more sense for these executions to be carried out simultaneously rather than one after the other. At 6.50am on the morning of the 2nd of June, Sandra Smith was collected from the woman's side of the prison and taken to a cell where she saw Yassim Harris again for the first time in two years. Then, along with two other men who were sentenced to hang, they would walk the 52 steps that led to the pre-execution room located next to the gallows. There, their death warrants were read out to them and they were allowed to say any last words they may have. They were handcuffed with their hands behind them and white hoods were placed over their heads. The hood had a flap at the front which was left open until moments before their death. Harris and Smith were now led forward into the execution room which was 12 metres long, brightly lit and painted bright white. The beams of the gallows ran along the length of the room and there were seven large metal eyes attached to the ceiling, and from four of those, nooses hung. The prisoners were then led to stand on painted footprints over trapdoors and held there by warders while the hangman put nooses over their necks. At this point, the flap on their hood was closed, and when the hangman was ready, he would pull the lever that opened all four trapdoors simultaneously. The prisoners would plummet through the trapdoors and the nooses would tighten around their necks. The prisoners would then be left to hang for 15 minutes. They would then be stripped and have death confirmed by a doctor. Their bodies would be sprayed off with a hose, left to dry and then placed into waiting coffins for burial in an allocated cemetery. Executions in South Africa were private and not open to family members or the public. But a man called Chris Barnard, who acted as hangman in over 1,500 hangings, would describe the process in an interview before his death. Sandra Smith would become the last woman executed in South Africa. Just four months after she and Harris were executed, the then President of South Africa, F.W. de Klerk, ordered a nationwide moratorium on executions until further notice. In 1995, the death penalty was formally abolished as it is incompatible with the new constitution of our country. Many believe that Sandra Smith had become aware that Jermaine Abrahams was quite important to Yassim and saw her as a threat. Some believe that her intention in going to the house that day was to kill Jermaine. If I consider how much Sandra left behind to be with Yassim, ending her otherwise happy marriage, breaking ties with her family and essentially abandoning her children, her level of obsession with the man is clear enough that I can't say that suspicion is definitely not true. One thing I do know is that neither of those people could have believed that Jermaine Abrahams was just going to play along and not tell her parents who'd robbed the house that day, and yet they chose to go there when they knew she would be home, with that knowledge in mind. Were they telling themselves some story of being able to get out of the situation without committing murder? Maybe. But both were old enough and smart enough to know in the back of their minds, that when they knocked on that door, they were making a choice. And for that choice, they both paid with their lives.
but Germaine paid with hers first, and she made no such choice. Her only mistake was doing what almost every other teenage girl has ever done, liking the attention of a handsome young man who she thought had just a touch of bad boy to him. It was only in those final moments when Yassim was bringing that knife down over and over again that she realised that what she'd seen in him was not just a streak of rebellion. It was a deep-seated disorder of his very personality that helped him to see everyone, including Jermaine and Sandra, as mere pawns in his game. As for Sandra, I have no idea what overtook her. Lust, obsession, a desire so intense it entirely consumed her. I wonder if when they placed the noose over her head, she finally realised it had all been a lie. Jermaine Abrahams would have been 53 years old this year. Her classmates and neighbours still remember her clearly. They've all lived the life she was supposed to. They've finished school, maybe studied further, watched South Africa progress into a new era, gotten married, had children, and even grandchildren. And Jermaine, well, Jermaine has remained the girl that no one can forget for all the wrong reasons. Because she's not 53, although she should be. She'll never be a day older than 16. And as much as I try, I cannot wrap my head around why that had to be. Jermaine Abrahams, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.